Acts 5, 1-42 Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you do such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds or mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They didn't use force because they feared that the people would stone them. 
having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put him to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we begin, let us uh, pray together. Our Father, we thank you for that great promise at the beginning of the book of Acts, that Jesus will send his church to witness to the world. And we pray, Father, as we think on this chapter this morning, you would give us great confidence in that work. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's something that sticks out in our passage this morning as you read through the book of Acts, and it's the fact that the word church features for the first time. It's there in verse 11. Now, right through Luke and right through Acts so far, we've not actually come across the word church. Now, I know we've been looking at the life of the church for the last four chapters, but actually the name church has yet to be mentioned. But as you think about it, that's this is quite an interesting place for Luke to introduce the word church, because it is not a pretty chapter. Uh, the church has a huge scandal and there's a horrible judgment uh, and there's a, a significant threat against the church. So why do you think, uh, why would Luke introduce the church where he has? I mean, surely he would present it when the church is at its high point, like the day of Pentecost or something. But actually he doesn't. He introduces it in a chapter 
where the church seems weakest and it's most threatened. Why introduce the church here? Well, because the church always looks weak and always looks threatened. See, in our secular West, most people think that the church has had its day. Every measurement index tells us of the increasingly empty pews in our churches. Uh, And public scandal after public scandal has left the church's moral case uh, bruised at best, hypocritical at worst. And even in the last 50 years, I think the church, especially in this country, has moved in people's perceptions from being a kind of quaint group for good people to now, for my generation, something that's even a threat to tolerance or moderation in our society. And I don't know about you, but we as Christians, we we look ahead, don't we? And we wonder about the future of the church, whether there be a church or what the state that church will be in. And not only that, our experience of the church can even chip away at our confidence in the gospel. Of course, Jesus promised in Matthew's gospel that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But as we look at the church and look at the state, we often find it in. It is hard to hold on to that promise and square it with what Jesus says. But here's the thing that Luke, our author, wants us to see this morning. He wants us to see that the church always feels weak. It feels weak in the 21st century and it felt weak in the first century. But here's the thing he wants us to see. This is God's church. And because it is God's church, it is never truly weak. See, we see in this chapter two major attacks on the gospel, one internally from verses 1 to 11 and one externally from verses 17 onwards. And those two attacks come at the church from both angles and they show us that the church can never truly be threatened. It will grow because it is God's church. So let's have a look at that first one, the internal threat to the church. Now, undoubtedly, this first section raises all sorts of questions about Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, what, uh, why were they judged for keeping back part of their money? And why this harsh judgment on them? Now, um, it's important we understand in this section what the precise nature of their sin is. Now, as we look back to chapter four, we see that this comes in a context. It comes in a context where the church has shown immense generosity. Uh, have a look uh, back over the, 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 the chapter. it come up on your screen as well. Chapter 4, verse 34. This is what we read. From time to time, those who own lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had a need. So the, chapter 4 is an incredible moment for the church because people don't just give out of their income. They give out of their capital. They sell their houses, sell their land, and lay that money at the apostles' feet so it can be distributed to those in need. Now, it's worth saying that that act was not compulsory. In fact, Peter says in chapter 5, verse 4, was this not your land to do what you wanted with it? And wasn't the money yours to decide with? So this isn't the end of private property rights. And not every single Christian needed to do it. We read in chapter 12 that Mary, mother of Mark, owned a house. And so Ananias and Sapphira didn't need to give all their money or they didn't need to do this act. So what did they do wrong then? Well, the clue comes in the word 
lie. Have a look at verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart so that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Or end of verse 4, you have not lied to men but to God. See, notice the repeated word, lie, lie. So it's not that they've not given enough. It's that they've not been honest. And you can imagine, can't you, how this all unfolded, how Ananias saw um, all this uh, money being given uh, by the church and all the talk that generated, the applause. Uh, We even read at the end of chapter four, Joseph is given a nickname, son of encouragement. And you can imagine them thinking to themselves, it's quite human, isn't it? To think, well, we want some of this recognition. How about we sell some of our property? Except we don't need to give it all. See, we can hold a bit back. No one knows how much we've sold it for. See, they want the praise without the price. It's the sin of hypocrisy. Okay, we say, but why this harsh judgment? Well, look again at who they've lied to. See, verse three, he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And verse four, you've not lied to men, but you've lied to God. And look at verse nine again. Peter said to you, how do you, could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? See, notice Peter's not saying here, look, you've lied to me. You've let me down. He's not even saying, look, you've let all these guys down. He's saying you've lied to God. See, I, I can imagine if Ananias and Sapphira were able to give a defense, they would have said, OK, fair enough. We lied. You call us. But we've only lied to a group of people. Well, Peter's saying, no, you've misunderstood the church. This is not just a group of people. This is God's group of people. See, to sin against the church, Peter says, is to sin against God himself. That's worth saying if we're um, in any way sensitive to what happens here, that this is not an everyday occurrence. See, this um, act of judgment is like the other big signs in Acts. They're to point forward and make a teaching point. And this is not saying that the moment we mess up in church, we're going to fall down dead. Nor is it saying that God gives us kind of one strike and you're out. He doesn't say you have one opportunity and if you sin, well, that's it. But he is showing us, this is the teaching point, he's showing us how seriously God takes the church. See, maybe we do think this is harsh and to some extent that's understandable. But imagine this didn't happen. Imagine Ananias and Sapphira were able to pull off this great um, con and uh, no, no one found out. Well, then we would have nothing to show us how seriously God takes hypocrisy. See, one of the reasons I think the church has lost its moral voice in our culture in this day is because of its perceived hypocrisy. Whether it be the high profile abuse cases, the mega church pastors who have dominated their position or the scandal of the prosperity gospel see people point the finger and and rightly so and say hypocrisy is in the church when i have conversations with non-christians i think this is actually the number one issue that's raised now not science not suffering but it's the perceived hypocrisy people who say one thing and do another and it is so helpful for me to be able to say to them God hates it more. See, God cares about hypocrisy. Not everyone's struck down instantly, of course, like Ananias and Sapphira. But this is a sign that points forward to the judgment that is to come. And the fact that God does care 
about hypocrisy in his church. See, we see here, don't we, that the church is not something to trifle with. The church is not a social club. It's not a quaint group for people to get together and be nice to one another. The the church is not a leisure activity. It's not something for us to do. The the church is not a Facebook group where we come together and share a, a shared interest. See, the church is God's. The church is God's people. I wonder if you see that. It's it's hard, isn't it, to hold on to that at the moment, especially uh, where church has changed a lot and we kind of click on to Zoom meetings. It's very easy to be very casual about things and kind of come onto the Zoom meeting and not give it a second thought about who these people are. But actually, what binds us most uh, of all is the fact that God has called us out of the world to be part of his church. Perhaps when we're going on to our next Zoom meeting, that'd be a great thing to remind ourselves uh, uh, this is God's people and he is invested in protecting his church. Now, of course, there's all sorts of worries, aren't there, about the future of the church internally. Uh, perhaps we fear what's uh, going to happen with the leadership of the church or whether some of the scandals uh, we're sadly uh, hearing about and all the consequences are, are going to just um, make our voice uh, not heard as we go forward. But of course, those things are serious and real and we need to respond rightly to them. But this is a great reminder, isn't it, that God is in the driving seat. Jesus will build his church. He will ensure its holiness and he will protect it from the internal threat. So that's the internal threat. But I guess for lots of us, our fears are more on the external opposition that we face. So what about that? Well, the next part of this passage Uh, Luke shows us that even the external threat is no match for God's church. See, this next part from verse 17 onwards is the classic David and Goliath match, because the apostles have been told by the ruling establishment not to proclaim uh, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, of course, they don't uh, obey that. They go out and uh, carry on. And so we read in verse 17 that the high priest rises up and uh, arrests the apostles and puts them into prison. See, it seems at this point that Goliath has won. A gagging order has been put on the church. The handbrake has been pulled up on church growth. And this is it. The apostles are in prison. But that is until God acts. See, we read in verse 19 that an angel came and opened the prison doors. Now, we don't know what that looked like. Uh, I guess this wasn't a being with... um, wings and that sort of thing but it was a person sent uh, an angel rather sent from God who miraculously brought out the apostles so they could carry on proclaiming the gospel now I don't know about you but I think there is a lot of comedy in the bible and this is one instance of it because um, it just is absolute comedy uh, as you read what happens look at the second half of verse 21 See, when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving to the jail, the officers did not find them there. So this is like the kind of state opening of parliament. Just look at who's involved. We've got the high priest. We've got the whole council, all the representatives of the establishment. And uh, when they go and get the defendants, they're, they're not there. 
Uh, and the report comes back and everyone's kind of scratching their heads. And then we read in verse 25, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And so it's, it's like one of those kind of fairground rides, you know, where you, uh, the, the, the kind of little heads with the faces pop out and you have to hit them with a mallet. Well, um, uh, and then they pop up in different places. It's, it's exactly like that for the apostles. They, they thought they locked them up. They thought they stopped them. But actually, they just pop up in another place. Or, in fact, in the same place, they pop up in the temple. But then things turn a bit more serious. In fact, a lot more serious as the apostles are pulled in for questioning. And what's remarkable here is even the opponents to the church recognize the great growth that has happened. Look at what they say in verse 21, 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. See, they have filled Jerusalem. The, the teaching has gone out through the whole city. And Peter's defence here shows us why that is the case. Look at verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exhorted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he may give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Do you, do you see Peter's point? Who's at work here? See, he says this same God who has exhorted his servant Jesus is now at work in his Holy Spirit, as his Holy Spirit is given to the church. And, and so we see again, don't we, that this God is the force behind the church. This is not just a group of 12 men. This is not just some political revolutionary uh, uh, group. This is Jesus, the exhorted Jesus, building his church. It's exactly what we saw at the beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, I'm going to send you out as witnesses. And so the gospel is heard in all nations. And not even the might of this council or the argument of the high priest, or the threats of the Sanhedrin, or the prison bars uh, that the apostles stand behind. None of of those things can ultimately oppose Jesus's work of taking the gospel out to the ends of the earth. Uh, This incident, it reminds me of something that happened in a previous church I was in. Um, I was in a church and um, someone in the church decided... um, to produce a little booklet uh, called something like Investing for Jesus. This was kind of um, an investment bank, uh, so it kind of the language kind of works with them. And uh, they decided, the Christian group in this firm, to give this booklet to 1,500 uh, employees and invite them to uh, a talk to um, explore the Christian faith. And um, they decided to start this work at 7.30 a.m., so they, couldn't, um, they weren't using up work time. But at 7.45 a.m., they were called into HR to explain what they were doing. And HR were absolutely furious. Uh, They said they had no right to do this. And uh, they they said to this guy, you need to go round the office and apologise and take back the booklet to every single one you've given it to. Now, the guy uh, was initially uh, put back by this. He he was um, pretty frustrated that he wasn't able to do this. But then he thought to himself, actually, this is a great opportunity. 
because he was sent round every single employee. I think it took him three and a half hours to go to them and apologise and take back this booklet. And of course, people asked, what was it about? Why were you giving it to me? And so he had a greater opportunity than he ever imagined. See, there's story after story like that where people seek to uh, stop the work of the gospel going out. But actually, God is able to work through those things. See, even a member of this council realises that. See, um, as we read on, we realise that uh, uh, there's a council leader who actually recognises the point uh, of this chapter. Uh, His name's Gamaliel. He's mentioned in verse 34. In fact, he's a notorious teacher, not just written about in the Bible, but also written about in the history books uh, around this time. And he does the kind of mental maths and realises that uh, the, the council doesn't need to get blood on their hands by killing the apostles. All they need to do is leave them alone. Now, why does he say that? Well, he thinks that they're going to be a one-hit wonder. See, he mentions two leaders, Thudas and Judas. Uh, both were leaders in the first century, and they both popped up, led a, a revolutionary group. Uh, but then the might of the Romans met them, and they crushed them, and no one's ever talked about them since. In fact, I guess no one has ever heard about them uh, apart from Acts. And uh, he, he applies that same logic to the apostles. So look at the argument he makes in verse 38. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against the gospel, against God. See, Gamalei is not the model Christian response. Uh, Gamalei is not kind of becoming a Christian at this point, but he is speaking more than he realises because he's articulating the whole point of this chapter, which is that the apostles are from God and to fight against them will find yourselves fighting against God. And actually, even though it's very cynical logic, it is very persuasive logic, isn't it? Because 20 centuries later, there still is a church. Now, I know there's many struggles with the church, but the very fact we're talking about a church is testimony to the fact that God has continued to work through the centuries. See, it's incredible. Whether you're this morning a Christian or not, It is incredible to think that for 2,000 years, people from many cultures, not just one culture, have turned their lives towards the Lord Jesus and have come together to connect as this group. People from all over the world, different backgrounds, different income levels, have become part of this church. There's no other groups like it. And it's very easy, isn't it, to look at all the problems of the church and to forget that God has been faithful for 2,000 years. And even this testimony of Gamaliel in this uh, uh, council shows us Jesus' faithfulness to his word. And the big point here in in this second point is to see that whatever external threat comes our way, God is able to work through it to ensure that his church is built See, in the earliest days, it looked like the church was going to be extinguished uh, barely, when it, uh, barely uh, before it got out of the starting blocks. But God worked. It grew because it's God's church. And no one ultimately uh, can stop it from growing. 
maybe uh, you are a, a Christian, but you've kind of held off speaking about the Christian faith openly. And one of the reasons is because you fear what might happen. But let me say that it is always the case that when we speak about Jesus, we will meet opposition. There's always a pain barrier. There is no easy way. But the thing is, we see here that we don't have to worry because we're not alone as we do that. And in fact, our very act of speaking and even the opposition may cause many to hear of the Lord Jesus. And of course, in our world today, there is story after story of that happening. Just think of China and the great persecution that happened in the 20th century or places like Iran and North Korea. And look at the growth of the church in those places. See, people who thought they could extinguish the church and snuff it out have found the opposite as God has worked through that opposition to bring uh, the news of Jesus to others. Now, what does that mean uh, this morning for each of us? And what does that mean for us at St. Mary's? Well, I want us to finish by looking at the Apostles' response. Now, this final point is a bit shorter than the others, so don't worry. Uh, But I want us just to focus in on the last two verses of this chapter. Because the council are now persuaded by Gamalay's logic. They don't kill the apostles, they release them. And that might seem like a good outcome to us. They're out of prison, they can proclaim the gospel, except we read that they flogged them first. Now, flogging was not a a light punishment. Uh, People we read in the ancient world even died uh, from flogging. It was probably, they're speaking of, the 39 lashes here. It was a considerable punishment, but yet... Look at the apostles' response in verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. It is a staggering response, isn't it? They rejoice, they find joy, not in the pain of the whip, but in the fact they share this name, that they are labelled Christians. And look at what they do next, verse 42. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Now, you might expect after a few lashes that there will be some downtime, a chance for the the scars to heal or or perhaps just to ease off a little bit until the tension uh, falls uh, uh, before they go and uh, start again. But notice what they do. They rejoice. They proclaim. I remember when I uh, became a Christian um, uh, a number of years ago now, uh, I encountered uh, a lot of people kind of um, quite surprised at the fact I've become a Christian. And uh, some of my flatmates at university started to talk against me and kind of uh, say, I can't believe Rob, of all people, feels that um, he can call himself a Christian. And I remember hearing these reports come back to me and feeling uh, a bit disheartened. Now, it wasn't 39 lashes or anywhere near it. But it did affect me because I thought, what have I done wrong? And why are these people speaking this way about me? And a friend of mine, a Christian friend, came alongside me and said to me, do you know what, Rob? I'd be encouraged because it means they've noticed the change. And it means that you are being identified as a Christian. And it changed my whole perspective on that opposition. Now, we don't look for opposition, of course, And we need to be careful that we're not encountering opposition just because we're a pain in the neck. And hopefully we've got good friends to to point out the difference. 
But what the apostles show us here is what it means to understand that we're part of God's church. See, none of us deserve to be part of God's church. None of us deserve to share the name of Jesus. It is by his mercy, through his death, that Jesus opens his arms and brings us into being part of his people. And to be identified that way is a joy. It's a privilege. And maybe it doesn't feel that way. Maybe uh, you've got all sorts of fears about being part of the church. Maybe it's that anxiety that if you post the wrong thing on Facebook, you'll get the internet trolls in response. Maybe it feels exhausting to uh, speak with family and endure some of the insults and the mickey taking. Or maybe you just feel tired of that constant sense that people feel you're stupid because that's the way we perceive Christianity in the culture. But what a privilege, because those things make us remember that we're being identified with Jesus. And if we're being identified with Jesus, well, that is an encouraging sign that we're part of God's people and we can rejoice along with the apostles. I wonder if we see that this morning. It's very tempting, isn't it, to just keep our heads down and just play safe. But I wonder, do we have the same priority as the apostles? Do we get what it means to be part of God's church and the great confidence they have in taking this gospel to the ends of the earth? And do we have this priority in our church life here at St. Mary's? Now, I'm thankful that lots of us do Uh, share that concern to, to share the gospel with others. But here's another reminder of why that is so important and what a privilege that is. See, there is nothing to fear. Jesus has promised to build his church and no matter what threat, whether internally or whether externally, God will do that. He shows us here and he showed us for the last 2000 years and he will continue to show us in the years to come. Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, for the great privilege of being identified with Jesus. We thank you, our Father, for calling us through your Son, by your Spirit. And we pray that like the apostles, we would grasp that truth deep inside us. And so, Father, like them, we would not cease proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.